Welcome to the Tone Stone Podcast. I'm Garrett Ryan, and my guest today is Professor Anthony Caldellis. Professor Caldellis, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me, Garrett. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, so you have written a steady stream of monographs and articles on Byzantine history, um, including a forthcoming history of Byzantium from Constantine to Mehmed the Conqueror. Um, and in addition to which, you're the host um, of Byzantium and Friends, um, the first academic podcast in Byzantine history. Um, all of that, of course, provides us with many angles, uh, points of departure for exploring um, virtually the whole, honestly, of Byzantine culture and society. But today I want to focus in particular on the middle and late Byzantine periods, and more specifically, on how elites of those periods um, mediated, dealt with, thought about um, the classical heritage of their state and society. Now, uh, Byzantium as a title is famously a misnomer um, invented in the, middle, in the early modern period to distinguish and sort of denigrate the medieval Greek Roman Empire from its classical predecessor. Um, it remains some utility as a term of convenience, of course, you know, Byzantium as a way of distinguishing the medieval Roman Empire from its late antique um, antecedent. Um, but uh, in your opinion, um, as a term of convenience, at what point does it make sense to begin calling the Eastern Roman Empire um, Byzantine as something essentially different, at least to some degree, from its antique incarnation or predecessor? Honestly, Garrett, I don't think that there's any point at which it makes sense. <laughs> uh, the, the, no, I mean, really, the, this is a, a long history of very gradual changes. After a thousand years, they accumulate to the point where you can point to some as being significant changes. Uh, but that is a feature of the of Roman history, of you know Greek mm -hmm. literature, of Christianity, uh, at, in any period. And so there's no point of rupture, mm -hmm. right? You can definitely look at the 15th century and say, wow, what we're seeing here, this society, this culture, is in some respects significantly different from what we're seeing in the 4th, yes. Uh, but if you try to go back and pinpoint where those changes happened, it just gets mm -hmm. dissolved into a field of, you know, um, long-term developments. Uh, so the question then isn't whether it makes sense, because in, in, sort of in terms of the reality of this society, it doesn't. The question is, when is it convenient to divide up the academic disciplines? In mm -hmm. other words, because of the nature of academic work, what that means is, we're having to make a decision about which group of scholars don't talk to which other group of scholars. <laughs> That's what it means, if, in effect. Once you designate mm -hmm. something as a different field, it means like early Roman imperial historians are like not going to be looking at, quote, late stuff and vice versa and so forth. Now, ideally, you want to say, well, you don't want that to happen. <laughs> you, you want people to be talking across these artificial boundaries as much as possible. In a practical sense, that's difficult to, that's a, that's a hard, that's a big ask, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so that boundary that you're asking for keeps shifting, but it, I mean, it used to be the fourth century. Now it seems to be something more like the seventh with the creation mm -hmm. of the field of late antiquity, which has claimed the fourth through seventh as an extension of antiquity. Um, so... You know, and, and, and it's bound to change some more. Um, or possibly we can ask Roman, his, Roman imperial historians to look at this whole period as a unit. Um, after all, you know, there were fewer changes that took place between any two centuries of, you know, this period than between the late Republic and the early Empire. 
And yet mm -hmm. that's treated as a unit by ancient Roman historians. Uh, so in sum, this is a period of very long and gradual transformation. It probably looks a bit more different after the seventh century, mm -hmm. um, but that's not a hard, you know, uh, stop or anything. Um, and in part, it has to do with the Arab conquest sort of diminishing the size of um, the Eastern Roman Empire and resulting in all kinds of adaptations. But those were adaptations that came out of the pre-existing system just as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's an important point to make. I think that when I was doing my own grad school reading lists for my language exams, the latest author I read, Greek or Latin, was Ammianus Marcellinus, you know, working in the fourth century. Um, and on the various survey courses, you know, same deal, that they end in the mid-imperial era, both Greek and Latin. And even if you do late antiquity, right, you know, you might venture into Justinian's reign, but any later, and it's, you know, it's Byzantine, you know, hands off, you know, that's medieval stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is almost like I said, a matter of, you know, self-imposed uh, boundaries or, you know, wall building discipline and the disciplinary level. Um, and, and it's so it, thinking about this as a unity, you know, this, this vast more than a millennium of history in Eastern, Eastern Roman Empire, there's this moment, um, not of rupture, but of, of great strain um, that corresponds to the Arab conquest of the seventh century. Um, when the empire is fighting for, for its survival, loses its richest territories in Syria and Egypt, um, and emerges at the end, um, say after a century or century, century and a half of turmoil, um, as a very different looking state, even the one that's not obviously essentially different, one that has transformed itself in many ways. And, and from this era of strain and transformation, um, how, say, how differently does a Byzantine, um, say, a, a patriarch Photius or somebody, look at the classic, classical literature, the classical heritage, from someone um, of the reign of Justinian? You know, does this impose a sort of sense of distance from antiquity, or is it just, it's still our heritage, still our culture, just a little bit more distant into the past? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, in some respects, difficult to approach because... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's hard to define the standards by which you're judging sameness and difference. <laughs> this is always right, a problem yeah. in history. Mm -hmm. um, and so one interesting answer would be, uh, or one interesting way to look at it, uh, would be that the period that of Justinian um, is in many ways still forming some of the basic templates of East Roman Christian life that mm -hmm. someone in the age of Photius is taking for granted, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, when Photius is looking back to that period, they're seeing it as a very um, kind of creative uh, moment when new things are being brought onto the scene that define their own life later. To give one example, Hagia Sophia, mm -hmm. right? Justinian's codification of Roman law, mm -hmm. right? what later they took to be the resolution of various theological controversies mm -hmm. um, in the, you know, in the, in the sixth century. So they're looking back and seeing that period as kind of canonical in a way, mm -hmm. right? And then behind that is what you're asking about is classical antiquity, which yes, it, it did lie behind. They never forgot it. But for them, this period from Constantine to Justinian is really the kind of golden age of a Christian Roman Empire, mm -hmm. right? And so they're very inclined to draw models from it. 
Whereas someone in that period is, you know, immersed in the whole process of, you know, creating these modes and orders that later were taken for granted. And they're looking back to the earlier Roman Empire, right, and classical antiquity behind it. It's a much closer relationship. Mm -hmm. In fact, in some ways, this period that we now conventionally call late antiquity was the one that kind of consolidated the view that posterity had of classical antiquity. So they're like deciding which texts get to survive, which ones are we going to copy, which one are we going to write commentaries on, um, you know, how are we going to teach them, things like this. And that then gets passed on later. Um, there's another bottleneck in the period of Phocius. So his generation is kind of engaged in the same process. That bottleneck is the creation of minuscule Greek um, mm -hmm. script writing, right? So. In the ninth century, they're beginning to rewrite everything in like small case Greek letters, which mm -hmm. were invented then. And so they're also having to make decisions about what to keep, what not to keep, and so forth. And Phocius, as you mentioned, is a very interesting example because he wrote this series of like about 300 book reviews um, mm -hmm. called the Bibliotheca in Latin. It's, a, it's actual name is 10,000 books. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. right? Um, and he, it's a kind of a record of his reading, um, not obviously not the most, you know, not the most obvious things, uh, that he, mm -hmm, he right. wouldn't merit a review because he knew everybody had read them, but uh, like even some of the more obscure things. And so we can get a picture there from what he had available to read that we don't. Mm -hmm. uh, and so somehow these texts were lost afterwards. And so he's a major source for them, right? So both periods are kind of gatekeepers of the classical tradition in a way. They're like they're deciding what their posterity is mm -hmm. going to have access to. And they're both doing that. Um, it's just for Phocius's generation, you know, that whole world of Justinian is the previous gatekeeper. Right. Uh, so, yeah. The, so there are these successive phases of filtering and adapting and readapting the classical tradition fundamentally, you know, it's, it's important to both of them. Um, and in roughly similar ways, like the way they're using, you know, classical Greek literature, Roman history, and, you know, Christian texts, both, both dogmatic, hagiographical, and whatever, it's, it's fairly similar. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know, maybe you want to uh, get into that or explore some other aspect of this. But I, I, I just tried to give you a sense of how the dialectical course, yeah. relationship between these two phases. Yeah. Well, that, that's very helpful. I think that in many ways, I'm a victim of that disciplinary wall building that we discussed earlier. And that, you know, I, I've been kind of trained, or at least have conditioned in some way to view the era of Justinian as sort of an end as opposed to a beginning. You know, a sense that this is, you know, the Roman heritage being tied up in a neat little basket and, you know, passed on, but really to medieval Western Europe in some sense is kind of the implication as opposed to Byzantium, where it's a much more living tradition uh, for someone like Phocius. Um, and, and so, yes, it, it's certainly true. Um, you know, think about those terms that there's not this great sense of separation or even a sense of really distance. Um, it's just the same tradition being repackaged and repurposed, um, you know, for the, the coming age and the coming generations. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the age of Justinian in that way, because that, that's exactly what's happened. You see, mm -hmm. the, the age of Justinian produced um, texts and doctrines and ideas and artifacts and things like that that are or became later 
sort of fundamental to the constitution of a Western European identity. Mm -hmm. And it became important as a kind of ideological project for Western states or institutions later on to claim that legacy. Mm -hmm. For example, Roman law, um, the the corpus. Now, the corpus of of, of civil law, which was not used in Western Europe, really, um, in Justinian's form, Oh, you know, not it started to it began to be studied again in northern Italy in like mm-hmm. let's say the twelfth century right, uh, right. systematically. And at that point, it became important for Justinian to be a Western Roman emperor, like in the Western Roman tradition. Mm-hmm. And so Western genealogies will sort of carve Eastern Roman history up in such a way as to this is just like bubble that claims Justinian and pulls him into a Western orbit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, also because of his codification of Chalcedonian doctrine and, and the councils mm-hmm. of Constantinople and so forth, and then leave the rest. Right. Right. So in the Western middle ages, if you were to ask like, okay, so when does Roman history proper end in the East? They'll say, well, right after Justinian, because we want all the stuff until then. <laughs> after that, it's all this Greek stuff and we don't care. Right. 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 Interestingly enough, the sort of field of late antiquity does the same thing today. Like that, it kind of functions that way to to create Mm -hmm. this east-west block that's unified and all this stuff can then pass to the Western tradition. Um, And Byzantium is kind of left as this rump after the 7th century. (laughs) We don't care about it, you know, that Right, right. Um, anyway, yeah, so there are politics about how we divide up periods and who gets to claim which emperors and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's still political. Well, definitely, you know, and nonetheless so for being implicit you know, in how we design curriculums or whatever else. Exactly. Um, interesting. So obviously, like you said, it's, you know, thinking about continuity or let alone difference is never simple. It's a matter of what you, what, uh, what comprises continuity or in what sense you define continuity. And that, of course, is, you know, the, the thread of this whole interview, for better or worse. So we have to kind of have to think about what, what continuity actually is. But thinking about, I guess, in the most physical sense, um, the city of Constantinople, you know, which is the center of both of Eastern Roman society and both the reign of Justinian, perhaps not as monolithically as it would be later. This is one of several large cities, but still a center, the imperial center. Um, and say that same city, the city of Constantinople, um, in the reign of the Komneni, uh, say Manuel Komnenus or someone in the late later 12th century. So it, let's say we have six centuries of difference or of time elapsing between Justinian's reign and that of Memo Comnenus. The city of Constantinople is, in both periods, the largest city in West in Europe, or seems to be. But Cordoba shoehorns in there at some point. But um, yeah. you know, almost a half million people probably in each instance. So in what in what sense is Constantinople A, the Constantinople of Justinian in the 550s, say, um, and Constantinople B, um, that of Memo Comnenus in the 1170s, um, are these the same city? In what sense um, are these very different places? Um, kind of a hard question, perhaps, to, to parse out, but it's kind of your sense of how we would think about that. Right. Um, okay, so let's make it the 330s rather than the 350s. Sure, yeah, why not? Yeah. To exclude the plague. Oh, yeah, exactly right, yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, because that would be at the forefront of anyone's mind. Of, of course, right, yeah. Okay, um, so it's... You know, it is a difficult question, but in the same sense as like, am I the same person that I was in the 80s? And, you know, not judging from T-shirts alone. Right, um, right. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm the same person. I, I would cringe, uh, you know, at the thought of meeting my 80s self. Um, but so, yes, it is the same city. It absolutely is. And I, I want to stress some of the lines of continuity 
mm-hmm. because in some respects, historians prioritize change. And mm-hmm. we, we just because, you know, history is largely a record of change. And so we, we tend to prioritize that. Um, and it gives us something to talk about. But in some cases, it's also important to insist on like many things that didn't change. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has to do primarily with the the population and you know who who they thought they were. Mm-hmm. In th- there are definite you know very strong lines of continuity between those two eras, uh, separated as they are by over half a millennium. In the sense that the population was overwhelmingly Greek-speaking, mm-hmm. regarded itself as Roman, um, as Roman citizens, and as the Roman people, populus Romanus, um, mm-hmm. the, and they were Christian. And that's true of both phases. The, 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 the overwhelming majority of the population. Mm-hmm. And if you were to jump from Manuel's reign ahead 500 years into the Ottoman period, this would not be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also, the, you know, the rulership would have changed, right? So in both of those, you know, East Roman periods, you have an emperor, Vasilevs, with the court, roughly the same place. They go to the Hippodrome, their games in the hip, their races in the Hippodrome, their acclamations, there's a Yosofia, they still use the same buildings, right? Mm-hmm. So... There's an, an enormous amount of continuity, um, and so let me mention some of the major changes here. So one of the major changes is what happens to the quote Latin-speaking element mm-hmm. in the city, and by Latin I mean Latin and like Romance language, but mostly Italian. All right. So in the sixth century, the Latin-speaking element is in some respects, the ruling element, like this is Justinian's background. He comes from the Western Balkans, um, he and his uncle, Justin, and they're primarily Latin speakers. Justinian knows Greek, but Latin is his primary language. And because the Eastern Empire at this time includes parts of the Western Balkans, um, let's say roughly a population of about a million, a million and a half native Latin speakers, Mm-hmm. who for centuries in that region, from that region, had joined the army and had produced most of the emperors of that period, right? So from like the third century to the sixth, the vast majority of emperors come from this region in what is today, or what was once Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fairly small area the size of, I don't know, Scotland or something, it's Serbia, uh-huh, right? Yeah. And they're Latin speakers, they predominate in the army and they rise through the ranks. They become emperors. Um, you know, the region of Illyria, as it's called mm-hmm. in, in the language of the time. And Justinian is one of them. He's one of the last in that tradition. In fact, that chain of like Latin speaking Illyrian emperors had been broken really only once with the Theodosian dynasty, late fourth to mid fifth century. Which the Theodosian dynasty happened only because a great deal of the officer class was wiped out at the Battle of Adrianople in 378. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. All right. So it's a kind of weird interlude, but still of Latin speak. Like Theodosius was from Spain. He was a Latin speaker. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So in this period, the Latinate element is like the ruling class from like the army and the court is still kind of operating in Latin. Justinian puts an end to most of that just for mm-hmm. practical purposes. In the 12th century, 
right? The empire has long since lost its native Latin-speaking element. And the, quote, Latins in the mm -hmm. city at this time are mostly Italians, uh, Venetians, you know, Pisans, Genoese, mm -hmm. who have been granted various sort of concessions along the um, the Golden Horn, this is the northern part of the city, uh, and they're like these merchant Italian, uh, uh, mercantile Italian communities that are at that point um, very much regarded as a, well, it's difficult to categorize. Um, usually friendly, <laughs> but potential enemies too. Mm -hmm. And in this period, the population of the city regards them as with a great deal of suspicion. Um, you know, they're, they're generally these wealthy elements from, you know, Venice and Genoa and what, what. And the native Constantinopolitans think that they're trying to, like, run the city from behind the scenes, dominate the economic, you know, uh, the trading scene and so forth. And there are also religious differences. Mm -hmm. There are pretty widespread beliefs that the, the Latins, in what we would call the Catholic Church, has deviated from correct practice and even possibly doctrine. And so there's the religious tensions too. In 1182, so just a few years after the comparison date that you gave me, mm -hmm. this breaks out in a pretty significant slaughter of Italians in the city, um, you know, because there was a... There's political contest going on. There was a, mm -hmm. uh, Andronicus um, was trying to, you know, usurp the throne and he mobilized the people of Constantinople in this way. It's kind of like his propaganda was anti-Latin and it, mm -hmm. and it fell on, a, you know, very fertile ground in the city. And that's a major difference. Um, and another major difference would be how the city was supplied economically. So in the period of Justinian, it's just drawing massive amounts of grain from Egypt. Mm-hmm. Right, to feed its half million population. And we have an edict by Justinian that kind of lays out, specifies exactly how that system worked. Um, in the 12th century, obviously, it, it doesn't do that. Um, it, it doesn't, the empire doesn't have Egypt. And so the city's being provisioned largely through the market. Hmm. Um, but that means that the emperors are having to make sure that there's adequate provisioning um, brought into Constantinople. Uh, and uh, th so that it's a different arrangement for how you feed such a population, which was, by the way, not half a million in, in the 12th century. I mean, I, you, you mentioned mm -hmm. that the highest possible number might be 400,000. And even that's probably a mm. stretch um, okay. in, in part because they couldn't just feed it from Egypt. Which, right. Right. So you know, conservatively, let's say 300, maybe 350, something like that. It's, it's large. It is the largest city mm -hmm. around, yes, by for sure. Um, anyway, so those are some of the main um, continuities and, and, and major changes. Yeah, well, it is fascinating. I remember reading an article, I think it was uh, by Cyril Bango, about um, the ancient statues that were still, you know, in the cityscape of Byzantine Constantinople, you know, in, in the middle and late, late periods which accumulate all of these, you know, kind of curious folk tales, other things, but they're still there. You know, you still have, you know, the, the great Hercules and the Hippodrome and these other kind of curious uh, mm. uh, uh, mythical figures, whatever else, you know, the, the, the physical landscape remains the same in many ways, despite, you know, the, 
the shifting tide of populations and uh, the expansion and contraction of the city, of the city itself. Um, but thinking in, in general about these, these lines of continuity. So if, you know, in our, taking the same comparison, you know, our, our Constantinople of the 530s, the reign of Justinian, and our Constantinople of the 1170s with uh, Manuel Comnenus, um, if we look at the Grand Palace itself, um, at the imperial court, um, so there is this difference between the ruling class. You know, there are no longer Latin speakers or Latins in general involved in the ruling class um, in the Comnenian period. But thinking in terms of a, a style of rulership and how they uh, present themselves to their citizens, whether it's this autocrator or basileus, um, what are the, I guess, the differences or the continuities there in how the, emp the empire, or the emperors rather, um, project their power um, from the Grand Palace, from the Great Palace? Again, well, a huge question. I, was, I know that. Yeah. No, no, it's not. No problem. It's a question. I was actually just imagining yeah. Justinian and Manuel Comnenus together in a room. <laughs> well, that, that, to be a fly on the wall there, huh? That was Ooh, that yeah. was a dizzying thought there. All of a sudden. Yeah. Right. Um, you, you know, Manuel actually did try to emulate Justinian in some ways. A number of emperors did. Mm -hmm. Um. To give you an example, Manuel and Justinian are um, among very, very few East Roman emperors who use the um, triumphal titles, um, names as part of their title, mm -hmm. right? like Alamannicus, Gothicus, oh, yeah, whatever, yeah. in the case of Justinian, Vandalicus. And Manuel also did the same, and, and he put them in a big inscription that he put right outside the entrance of Hagia Sophia. I mean, in the Narthex, it's this big text that we have. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, there, there are um, some similarities in self-presentation there. So I would argue that, again, the lines of continuity here are much stronger than the changes. And I would, the changes I would attribute more to the personality of these two, the personalities of these two emperors that were very, very different. So mm -hmm. if you're asking me to compare um, Justinian and Manuel, we're talking about two very particular people who mm -hmm. both ruled for a very long time, had strong personalities, difficult though those are for us to glimpse. Of course. And and had great ambitions, like they wanted to do things and the persona that they projected, you know, matched those ambitions. So, mm -hmm. but, but I think that that is kind of tinkering really um, in, the, in the kind of margins of the imperial office, which relative, remained relatively stable uh, throughout this entire period in what it was supposed to do and mm -hmm. what it could do. Um, so, you know, against this backdrop of institutional continuity of like what the Vasilevs was in an East Roman context, what mm -hmm. his relationship was to the elites, to the people of Constantinople, to the clergy, to the church, right, remained mm -hmm. relatively straightforward. So you'll find the similar things over and over again, like, you know, Justinian basically strong arming bishops into approving theological positions that he wanted to mm -hmm. impose and did so successfully, ditto Manuel Comnenus. And with some of the mm -hmm. same techniques, you bring the bishops in individually, you work on them, wind them, dine them, you <laughs> get, you know, you, you get a, a scent individually, and then the group will kind of fall in line. Like they're doing the same kinds of things. 
um, and you know many other emperors did. So Justinian had a persona that was inscrutable even for contemporaries. Um, he rarely ever left the palace, and 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 we're treating the imperial box in the Hippodrome as an extension of the palace here, as they mm-hmm. did. Um, you surely went to Hagia Sophia, rarely ventured further out from that, and was he, he presented himself as, um, as a number of his inscriptions and texts call him, a sleepless emperor. Mm-hmm. Someone who was just staying up all night, working hard, like think paperwork, mm-hmm. to benefit his subjects, like, you know, reading laws, issuing laws, d- discussing theology, like all of this stuff, like a hard worker who's always in his office and who, you know, if you believe Procopius could summon officials into the palace for a, uh, a, a, you know, a report or whatever, a committee meeting at any hour of the night. And that was his approach. Um, he was not popular he wasn't loved by anybody um you know when the population rose up against him and his mm-hmm. officials he slaughtered 30 to 50,000 of them and that put an end to most dissent for a while a generation later it, it returned but mm-hmm. um so no not a loved person um you know like a bureaucrat in chief almost <laughs> Uh, just sending out orders from the palace that, that changed the face of the Mediterranean world, <laughs> you know, just sending. He was very good at delegating, right? Mm-hmm. So Justinian, he didn't really care what your social class was. He, he surrounded himself with these very capable and, you know, like strong-willed people who came from all over. Um, you know, so long as you were good at doing your job, he relatively trusted his officials to do it. Um Manuel is completely different persona, and that is in part because of Manuel. Um, mm-hmm. Like I don't think there's. Okay, so let me explain what it was. So Manuel cultivated this kind of spectacular, you know, Sun King persona, mm-hmm. like a um, a ruler who is so charismatic, so like generous and valiant in battle like he was a knight um you know and um yeah seducer of women like this sort of thing right Mm -hmm. um he would go out to wars and battle and fight um he he was very um persuasive um so kind of like a supercharged like over the top kind of you know almost like a superhero kind of like this is what he was going for and I mean mm-hmm. that kind of literally, like, it, it seems that it was during his reign when they um, devised this form of imperial ceremony called the Prokipsis, which was like the emperor would appear on a on a high and an elevated platform. Um, and there was like a light show and, <laughs> you know, and they'd pull back the curtain and he'd appear and there'd be a flash of light and like this sort of thing. Think pyrotechnics, mm-hmm. think, you know, <laughs> think uh, a concert. Um, so it it was kind of over the top. And... He had, it seems, an unlimited amount of money. <laughs> so somehow his economy was generating lots of mm-hmm. cash, which Justinian was always cash strapped. Like he, Justinian couldn't right. pay his soldiers. He, you know, was always delinquent and, you know, 
Manuel just throwing cash at everybody. And he used this in order to create this system of client kings and rulers all around him, you know, from Italy and even into like Germany and the Hungary and mm -hmm. even some of the Muslim states and the Crusader states. He spent his almost 40 years on the throne trying to bind them to him as dependents, as clients with these ceremonies, again, like, and games and, you know, entertainments in the capital where they would come and sit on a lower throne and he'd throw cash at them mm -hmm. and expect them to show up when he needed them. And it, it, it's really like, I, I ha there's nothing like it in East Roman history ever. Uh, someone trying to do that. And, and, to, and he did it with a great deal of finesse. He was very good at it. And so he bound all of these like peripheral principalities, like even the king of Jerusalem and, you know, you name it. <laughs> right, yeah. The throne of Hungary, like he kept mm -hmm. them all like they were like jewels in his crown. And he was widely admired for it. Um, now, why was he doing this? And, well, part of the answer has to do that the 12th century, is the only period, it's that, it's the tipping point in East Roman period when the empire is not hegemonic. This is not like mm -hmm. Basel II or whatever, where like there's no one on the periphery that can really challenge you. You're completely dominant in your geostrategic space, mm -hmm. uh, you know, after the conquest of Bulgaria, right? So that's one set. And then later, in later Byzantium, when you're like a second or third rate power, you're declining, right? right? The 12th century is this um, singular balance point where it's, it's like, it's, it has peer polities, right? A bunch of Muslim states, a bunch of Western Christian states, German empire, like they're much more comparable. And Manuel is trying to use his resources um, and his cultural resources to sort of symbolically dominate that scene, right? Because uh, it was very difficult to do so militarily anymore, mm -hmm. right? So that's, they, you know, these are very different rulers in that sense, but it, it goes to their particular conceptions of themselves in history. Um, the fundamentals of the imperial office, I think, remain pretty consistent. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. You know, I think I chose... You know, Manuel and Justinian, more or less, almost on a whim, they're two you know, long-ruling rulers, you know, who are known for being distinctive, you know, distinctive personalities, strong personalities. But as you say, uh, the fact that they have strong personalities and, you know, very different personalities and rule in very different circumstances shouldn't obscure the fact that the actual position um, from which they're ruling is basically similar. Um, they said that the idea of what emperor should be and can do um, is consistent across all those centuries. Yeah. So if we have these two guys in a room, which again would be fascinating, um, and they're speaking Greek to each other, um, would they sound different? Or is this the same, you know, this is Greek being spoken in the same way, the same register, you know, would they, uh, I guess at the educated level, did Greek sound similar in the reign of Justinian um, as it did in the 12th century? If we have any handle on that from, from literature, it's kind of a matter of curiosity. Oh, yes. No, they would be able to converse without any problem. Justinian would probably mm -hmm. have uh, some kind of Latin, Western Balkan oh, right, Latin right. accent. 
Um, I don't know what that would sound like. <laughs> right. Um, but he could easily converse in Greek. That's not a problem. Um, and mm -hmm. so could Manuel. And neither of them were like highly educated in the classics. Mm -hmm. they, they weren't interested in that side of, they, you know, they had writers at the court to provide any kind of, you know, mm -hmm. literary embellishment that, that their projects right, right. required. Um, so they would have been speaking in a much more, you know, closer vernacular level language. Um, I think they could understand each other with no problem. In fact, a modern Greek could uh, could converse with them with very little difficulty. It, it would take a little adjustment, but not that much. Mm -hmm. um, the sound of the language, certainly by Manuel's time, would have been exactly modern Greek. Mm -hmm. In Justinian's time, there were only a few vowels that might, if you were pretentious enough... <laughs> have inflected a little differently, like Ypsilon. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that would have been a small... So the differences would have been much smaller than between, um, you know, the English spoken in mm -hmm. Alabama and that in Australia. Mm -hmm. Sorry, yeah. I have a truck backing up here. No, no, it's fine. Yeah, I'm sure he'll, he'll pass by in a moment and... Uh... So, um, to, to resume now, you mentioned that both you know, in our hypothetical scenario where, where Manuel and Justinian are hanging out, you know, chatting in Greek, um, this is not a very um, uh, educated register of Greek. It's, it's the everyday, you know, demotic Greek, so to speak. But, you know, the, the, the few, you know, cognoscenti, you know, these literati who are hanging out in the court of both of them, you know, are the, the grandmasters of this much more uh, involved style, kind of the atticized Greek that, uh, you know, uh, we find in many Byzantine literary sources. And one thing I was struck by reading about, say, Byzantine education is the incredible conservatism of how they teach Greek. You're using the same classical text, you know, your, your Dionysius Thrax, your Hermogenes, whatever it might be, you know, consistently for really almost 14 centuries in some cases, from the early imperial period right to the end, even beyond the end of the empire. And so is this impression of incredible conservatism misleading? Or was it really just the same system being used for millennium to teach Greek and to think about um, the classical heritage or the classical literary heritage in many ways? You know, I don't think it's misleading, um, though it depends on what exactly you're looking at. Mm -hmm. If the question is about, you know, how did you become trained in the use of ancient texts and the idiom of those texts, like Attic Greek mm -hmm. or a whole bunch of intermediate registers. It, it's not just Attic on the one hand and spoken on the other. There's a whole range of things in between. Right, right. Um, uh, so if the, if the question is like the, the highest levels of education um, that you could receive, that would enable you to write the kinds of like orations and historiography and things like that, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was very conservative, and, and it w was pretty much the same. Uh, some techniques changed. Um, there was some introduction of some new pedagogical techniques in the 12th century. These are very technical things. Mm -hmm. uh, but the end result would have been roughly the same. In other words, that they are writing in an idiom that is best understood if you study classical Greek mm -hmm. and not modern Greek, which is what they would have been speaking at home, mm -hmm. unless their home life was really much more interesting 
<laughs> um, right. Unless they're wearing, wearing tuxedos at home, right? Like, uh, yes, yes, yeah. right. Um, so, yeah, no. The, so the Greek literary tradition is one of the most sort of stable in history throughout the millennia, if you compare it to any, almost anything else. Mm-hmm. As in the same way that the Greek language, like, of course, it's changed a lot since the Bronze Age. <laughs> um, but by any number of indicators, less so than any other language in the same period of time. And also, like, the script fundamentally hasn't changed since the time of Homer. Mm-hmm. I mean, the letters have sort of been systematized. But um, so it is a very um, durable system. I mean, so calling it conservative, I, I don't know. I mean, in in modernity, calling something conservative, something of a sort of culturally relevant conservative is, mm-hmm. um, it can have negative connotations in the sense that we expect like literature and education or whatever to be innovative and, and mm-hmm. you know, producing new things and changing and adapting and all of that. And so conservative is like dry and what, um, but so if we can avoid those kinds of connotations, the reality is that when you learn classical Greek, it gives you access to a written tradition that spans, yeah, three, you know, two, two and a half millennia. And that was part of the point. Mm. In other words, look, like Thucydides, at the beginning of his history, he says, I have written this history for it to be a possession forever. Mm-hmm. And he's right. Okay, I don't know about forever, but two and a half thousand years <laughs> right. is a good run, right? Yeah, yeah. And there are more people reading Thucydides today than were ever reading Thucydides in any period of history before us, Mm -hmm. like flat out, right? So if you were situated in, say, Justinian's time or Manuel Comnenus' time, and you're like, okay, I'm going to write, I'm going to write something important. And I want people Mm -hmm. to appreciate it today as being important. And I want people in a thousand years to be able to read this, Mm -hmm. right? Well, your best bet is to write it in that language because you already have a track record that it has endured for all this time already mm-hmm. and might likely do so in the future. And you would be right. And if you wrote it in like spoken Greek, then suddenly it's limited to, you know, people who speak that language. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in, for most of Byzantine history, this, you know, those two groups were the same. Right. Um, but this is the important thing about the classical tradition. They don't have to be the same. And today mm-hmm. they're not the same. Right. So classical texts made it into Arabic culture. They made it into Western European culture. They made it into, you know, Byzantine and, you know, and Slavic and you mm-hmm. name it. Right, right, right. right? Um, and there they are surviving in different languages. And um, anyway... So there was also this kind of practical calculating aspect. Like, let's use what works. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
you know, one imagines like these Egyptian scribes, you're know, right, trying to carve or carvers, carving hieroglyphs of the tomb walls, you know, it's in a huge pain because it's all these very involved characters, but they know that it's worked for 2,000 years, so, you know, on the tomb walls they go, and, you know, it's supposed to last for eternity, so hieroglyphs it is, you know, as opposed to a demotic or whatever else script. Um, and, uh, oh, sorry, Wanda. Yes, but see, th mm -hmm. it's a different dynamic because um, Egyptians who are writing hieroglyphs are not doing so for the purposes of like maximum dissemination. Mm. Right, right. Right. Um, this was a very kind of esoteric, um, arcane script. Mm. This is why they had other scripts. Right, right. <laughs> right. Uh, hieratic and then demotic. Mm -hmm. because those are much more practical. Um, and it's not entirely clear who the expected audience of hieroglyphs was. It, like in many cases, it's yeah. the gods. Right, right. Now, Attic Greek is also not easy. Like you're not writing Attic Greek for maximum dissemination, but you might be writing it for, um, you know, maximum longevity and mm -hmm. to enter that tradition well, you might make the case for some hieroglyphic text. Like, yes, they're carving them on stone for a reason. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. well, yeah, it's fascinating. So I guess the conservative is perhaps a, a misnomer in the sense that you mentioned. Um, it's more, maybe durable is a better way to think about it, that it serves the same purposes again and again for more than a millennium. It, it, that, that purpose never wears out its welcome. You know, that this is what you do if you're trying to make an impact on posterity, right? Lasting literature. Yeah. You know, successfully or not, this is the ambition. Yeah. Um, and there's what's interesting um, that at least in certain periods there's an, an ambivalence about the source text, you know, about you know at least in the beginning, you know, before there's this solution in the, re in the reign of uh, say between um, Constantine and Justinian, when they work out you know what's acceptable as a, a source text, um, the sense that there's the, the style of the texts is immortal, that this is something that's great, you want to imitate, you know, the the stylings of. Uh, you know, a Demosthenes in prose or, you know, a, a Homer or a Sappho or whatever else in poetry. Uh, but there's this, you know, the, the, the pagan element, the, the polytheist element in the background that might be dangerous if misapplied in any case. And th there seems to be sort of a, a, a modus vivendi worked out, you know, people like, uh, you know, Basil of Caesarea were, you know, writing about how this is not dangerous if you use it, you know, uh, with a, a keen sense of what it's used for. But, you know, is there this ambivalence throughout Byzantine history um, that these source texts are not Christian, are in some way distinct from what we're doing with the, the, the texts, that their stylistic models are nothing more? Um, or is this ambivalence in that we play up as modern scholars, excuse me, that didn't exist um, in the Byzantine classroom? They just use Homer automatically because Homer is what you use um, to, you know, teach literature or morality, whatever else. Oh, there's always an ambivalence. Um, mm -hmm. It's a very tense situation, and it, that that tension never goes away. Mm -hmm. um, they explicitly labeled these texts as the outside texts, like mm -hmm. of the faith, right? And they called Christian texts our texts. Mm -hmm. Like those are the technical terms, right? Right. Now. What's interesting, of course, for us is that these outside texts are very inside. Like they're they're part of the culture, even if you know the people in the culture are pretending that they're not. Mm -hmm. Okay, like all cultures do this, right? Sure. Okay, all cultures pretend to externalize things that, in reality, they're consuming 
on a you know like an industrial scale in our case and so forth okay <laughs> um so in this particular case what we have is not an inside outside they're both inside but a kind of stance that you take to signal your priorities publicly uh, mm -hmm. now what you do privately is a is a different matter um uh, in, in Byzantium as in every other society. So, so let me tell you briefly what the problems were. The problems were not really the gods. Okay. I mean, yes, but by a certain point, Christians are not afraid that someone is going to start worshiping the Greek gods that you find in Homer. Mm -hmm. Like those were almost adorable. <laughs> they're like, you know, they're, they're not a right, real right. danger. Mm -hmm. They're comical and somewhat... So Christians had come to believe that these gods are sort of silly. And right. I don't, yeah, I don't think that they felt any particular insecurity about them. Like they, you don't want them in your face. You don't want like the lewdness of Aphrodite to be right, mm -hmm. right? Though they did have statues of her and Athena and Apollo all over Constantinople. Like, it was okay. It was okay. They, they, they were beautiful, okay? <laughs> but they're not gods. They're not particular trouble. Okay, so what is the trouble? Um, so, two things. First, in reading ancient philosophy, you can come to question Christian doctrine. Mm -hmm. Right? Any ancient philosopher will do. So they wanted to have these philosophers, especially Plato and Aristotle, which is why we have them, right? They didn't right. particularly care for the Stoics and the Epicureans, which is why we don't have them, mm -hmm. right? Um, but they always wanted to do so with caution because there were, you know, metaphysical differences, doctrinal differences. You start thinking too much about these things and, you know, one mm -hmm. thing leads to another and the Trinity doesn't make sense or whatever. Um and probably the biggest problem, bigger even than that, were the kind of social values that you find in ancient texts. This was the biggest problem. It was that ancient texts, like, are a, they have things like, you know, they praise the body, they're like mm. erotic, um, they praise ambition and pride and like accomplishing things for your city and, you mm. know, these are antithetical to like the Sermon on the Mount and, uh, you know, like foundational mm -hmm. Christian values of humility and sin and, you know, guilt and all of this stuff. And that was the real problem um, that, that this literature can lead you astray from the practice of the faith. Mm -hmm. um, and this is what Basel, whom you mentioned, St. Basil Caesarea, 4th century, mm -hmm. this was his main concern. It wasn't like the gods, and it wasn't even really theology. It was the social values in these texts. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I recommend that everybody read this little treatise. It's called Two Young Men on How to Read Greek Literature or Pagan Literature, depending on how you translate it. And it's a, a, about this problem, right? Um, so... A number of texts that were like directly anti-Christian, they didn't keep or they destroyed, like anti-Christian mm -hmm. treatises by Porphyry or the Emperor Julian, mm -hmm. gone. Right? I mean, we have fragments because they're quoted by Christian reputation. Right. right? Um, but here's the literature that didn't survive at all. Heretical texts. Ah. Uh, mm -hmm. Right? 
Christian heretical texts, those were a far bigger threat to the Christian establishment than anything from antiquity. And we don't have those. Hmm. They're not even quoted often, right? Or they're quoted in very distorted ways. The only ones that we have are those that survived in like the Syriac tradition. Mm-hmm. Because of the Arab conquest, the right. Syriac Orthodox Church could maintain its own theological traditions. So the biggest threat by far was heretical stuff. Uh, beyond that, it was just insisting on Christian values, but they wanted to have their Greek classics. Interesting. So it's the enemy within that yes. matters more, right? The heretics. Yes, the one that is closest to you. Right, right. Um, because they're a legitimate threat in a way that, right, you know, kind of Zeus romping around with a nymph is not. Right. Um, yeah. Interesting. Um, and so thinking again about, you know, this, again, mediating the past, you mentioned before how in some ways the era between um, Constantine and Justinian becomes definitive for the rest of Byzantine history. Um, this is when the, the basis of society, or at least that society's lenses upon prior antiquity become uh, established, become definitive, canonical, however we, however we phrase that. And so uh, what I would ask is, um, looking at Byzantine chronicles and histories of the middle and late periods, let's say post-8th century, how much knowledge do we see of the period before Constantine? I mean, they're aware of it, obviously. They're reading texts that are written before Constantine. But, I mean, how much practical knowledge is there of history before Constantine? And how much do they care, I guess, is almost the same question, about what happens, say, in the reign of Augustus or the time of Julius Caesar? Are these just names, or is this a part of a living tradition that they care about? Oh, no, no, they care about it intensely. Um, Mm -hmm. And because they care about it, we have all those texts about it. Mm -hmm. You can think about it this way. So a good formula for assessing what the Byzantines cared about Mm -hmm. is to look at what we have, what survives. And what survives is an intense concentration of Greek historical texts that have to do with the transition from republic to empire Mm -hmm. and the early empire and so forth, right? We've got Plutarch and Appian, right? And um, Cassius Dio and, Mm -hmm. you know, a whole bunch of others and Polybius and, you know, from the early republic and so forth. Um, they were very interested. Uh, oh, Nicholas of Damascus uh, in extensive mm-hmm. fragments in the excerpt of Constantine VII in the 10th century. So there's this really, really dense concentration, focus uh, of Greek texts writing Roman history. Mm-hmm. Because, why? Well, I mean, one writer in the 11th century, he wrote an epitome of Cassius Dio. So this is a a Roman, a Roman senator writing in Greek in the early third century, and he wrote this massive, like, 80-book history of Rome, mm-hmm. um, of which we have some bits entire, other bits and pieces, and some summaries and things like this. And the bits that we have entire <clears throat> are precisely about, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Caesar and Augustus and the institution of the Roman monarchy. And he explains this later writer, Xiphilinus, um, who's writing a summary of Cassius Dio, and he says, I'm, I'm writing mm-hmm. all of this because all of it bears directly on the constitution that we live under today. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So they were fascinated by Roman civil wars because they tended to have them themselves, about one every 10 years. <laughs> they were fascinated by the circumstances that brought about the creation of the monarchy under which they lived, and they knew that that was their regime. Mm-hmm. 
Um, like the fundamental modes and orders of the Roman imperial monarchy were set, you know, in that transformational period. And so they wanted to know about it. Um, you know, it included also think titles like Augustus that they continued to mm -hmm. use. Like, where does this stuff come from? So, no, they were far more interested in that period than in, say, the second century AD. You got a bunch right. of good emperors, not much going on. Like, you know, a few summaries will suffice. Mm hmm. Right. Um, and then you have another really dense cluster of texts from late antiquity because they wanted mm -hmm. to know the, you know, the whole sort of Constantine, Julian, fifth century on to Justinian. They wanted to know about all that. And so that's another dense concentration. Mm -hmm. Why sort of late antiquity can be studied today in the kind of historical richness that it can in part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that, that's that's fascinating. I actually never thought about it in those terms. That you know, obviously, what we have is what mattered. That was copied out again and again. And I guess that I kind of blithely assumed that's something with through the stylistic models or the vagaries of fate. You know, when it actually is, what's relevant? That this is you know, this is relevant political history um, for someone living under a Byzantine emperor. Um, and that is actually made explicit, like I said, by by, by Zephylinus. Um, is I, I, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Yes. Um, so this is what's so difficult to persuade classicists of. That, <laughs> yeah, because, see, if, if a classicist became convinced that the record that we have, the sort of archive of Greek texts, is not mm -hmm. the best of the best, then aren't we lucky? Now, it mm -hmm. includes a lot of the best of the best, but that's in part because all of the people who made the decisions in between about what to keep sometimes had good standards, right? Mm -hmm. So that archive is not just the best of the best, nor is it completely random, right? In, in which case you're kind of, if it, if it were random, um, then you would be freed of the uh, labor of having to understand how it came to be, hmm. right? Um, because it's a non-random sampling of text from antiquity. Mm -hmm. um, it is, in fact, the product of choices. So, the, like, take historiography, we have texts, so Greek historical texts, that are those that are the, of the most interest, various kinds of interest, to Byzantine readers. Which is why we have this dense concentration of stuff about the late Republic and early monarchy, and we have almost no Hellenistic history. Mm -hmm. Right? We've got some stuff on Alexander. Oh, Alexander's always a hit every, right, in right. every period of history, what? right? <laughs> Um, and then you jump ahead, you have Polybius, but only because he's talking about Rome mm -hmm. and, and like no Hellenistic history and all these Hellenistic historians, dozens and dozens and dozens of them lost because like, who cares about the Seleucids, <laughs> right? Right. In Constantinople. Huh. Yeah, and that it makes perfect sense. Like I said, I, I've never thought about in those terms because again, I'm kind of within my disciplinary prison in you know, some degree. Um, so I guess to kind of wrap up everything we talked about, you know, think about the figure of someone like a Michael Sellis, or Sellis, I'm mispronouncing that, you know, the, the, the great Byzantine polymath of the 11th century, um, who writes history, writes everything else to some degree. Yeah. Um, if, if someone like, like Michael is looking back uh, on, and I'm sure we, 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 have, we have his own chrono, you know, his chronography, we know how he looks back, at least at recent history, um, upon the Byzantine heritage, upon the Roman heritage, um, does he see, I guess, um, these, how does he, how does he articulate, I should say, 
the the complications and incongruities um, in the notion of an empire that is both Roman by ancestry, by heritage, and Christian, um, also again, by distant ancestry and heritage. Um, is there in his view of both the past and of uh, emperorship, um, these points of fissure or division, any, any sense of complication in the heritage that constitutes Byzantine rulership and Byzantine history itself? That's kind of a messy question, but uh, your, your sense of that. Um, sure. So in his particular case, we actually have a different text of his. So you're referring to the chronographia. Um, right, right. Yeah, which is his very gossipy sort of court <laughs> memoir of the 11th century. Mm-hmm. He wrote a different text, which was kind of like a historical primer for um, <laughs> Michael VII, who was uh, probably when he was a teenager. And it's like a potted history of, uh, you know, the relevant history, in this case, Roman history. And it begins mm-hmm. with, you know, Romulus and like, huh. like it goes, it begins in this, it's the same story as what you would find in like Livy, but filtered through Greek sources, mm-hmm. you know, Dionysius, Halicarnassus and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it covers the kings, goes down to the early consuls. At some point he says, look, I'm not going to list every consul for 200 years. We're just going to jump ahead. <laughs> Jumps to Caesar, Augustus, and then the emperor straight down. At mm-hmm. some point, um, you know, Constantine is like the first Christian emperor. Good, we move on. Like, it doesn't change anything in the structure. Mm-hmm. Christianity is just something that happens along the way. Okay. So not a huge thing. And he evaluates emperors, like whether they're good or bad, largely on secular criteria. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now that's Pselos, because now you asked about Pselos, right? Um, yeah, right, yes. In his case, the the... The tension is more between the Hellenic tradition and the Christian tradition, especially because uh, he, as a kind of aspiring philosopher, mm-hmm. was trying to do things with Neoplatonism that were like not okay, and he knew it. <sighs> mm-hmm. And so he was trying to, in my view, you know, get his society or the learned people in it to think about even religious matters and metaphysical matters in a way that's more sort of Neoplatonic than overtly Christian. Mm-hmm. And that got him into trouble quite a few times. Um, but I think that's where he saw the tension between Greek philosophy and Christianity. And we talked about that earlier. Mm-hmm. Right. right. For most people, there was not um, any kind of serious tension between the Roman and the Christian time. They're, they're separate timelines in antiquity. They unite sort of under mm-hmm. either Augustus with the birth of Jesus Christ, you know, under Augustus uh, mm-hmm. or with Constantine, who's the first emperor to become Christian, whatever, they, they kind of unite and then they, they carry on in a single trajectory. And that was mm-hmm. straightforward. For tensions between those two, you would have to turn to like the accounts of the martyrs during the persecutions, where you mm-hmm. have like pagan Roman officials persecuting right. early Christians. Mm-hmm. And there you have some tensions, right? Um, the problem there wasn't that they were Romans uh, as that they were pagans in power, mm-hmm. right? But you do have that, you know, structurally it looks bad if you believe that these two things are sort of perfectly compatible, um, right. But that was the only real moment when they were like at, at, at odds. You know, the, the, the combination of Roman and Christian is not that problematic. And yeah, that we could do a whole podcast on, on oh, that. Oh, yes, yes. Yes. Um, um, 
but historically it wasn't such a problem. Like the Romans were pagans at some point and then they weren't. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Oh, that's fascinating. Actually, I was not aware of this kind of, you know, potted history that that, that, that Salas is doing. And you mentioned, right, that Greek, that Greek philosophy is the true, you know, uh, subversive element there. I guess it was his, his pupil, right? John Italos, I think it was, who was, you know, uh, you know prosecuted for this eventually. That's right, yes. Um, so anyway, like you said, that that's something for another podcast. Um, I've used enough of, your, enough of your time today. So, Professor Caldellas, thank you so much. Um, Anyone interested in Byzantine history um, is advised to read uh, some of his many treatises, including his forthcoming history of Byzantium from Constantine to uh, uh, Mehmed the Conqueror. Um, In addition, you can listen now to his podcast, Byzantium and Friends, which has a series of wonderful interviews with experts in all aspects of Byzantine history. So uh, thank you again, Professor Caldellas. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Garrett, for having me on. My pleasure. And everyone, thanks for listening.